This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the Contributes tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from All In with Chris Hayes, Counterspin, The David Pakman Show, The Tom Hartman Program, The Green News Report, On the Media, The Sierra Club, and The Young Turks. We're here in California, a state in the grip of a devastating drought more than a century in the making. That dusty patch of land behind me is meant to be a reservoir. And all this week, we'll bring you stories from all over the state, from the Central Valley to San Diego, looking at all the different ways this historic water shortage will impact not just the state of California, but the entire country, and what that means for a future era of climate crisis. California is dealing with its growing drought crisis. The state of California is resorting to drastic measures. California, California is in the midst of a drought of unprecedented California's scale. It is being called the drought of, the White of our House lives. And the worst could be yet to come. As long as there have been people in California, there have been people obsessed with California's water. And in the 120 years of official record keeping, the driest years ever recorded have been the last three. And things are getting desperate. The problem has gotten so bad in the Central Valley that the Madera County Sheriff's Department says thieves are stealing people's water. In East Bay, drought hotline has been inundated with calls from people complaining about neighbors who waste water. As any Californian will tell you, the drought is not just their problem. It's everyone's problem. California's our biggest economy. California is our biggest agricultural producer. So what happens here matters to every working American. California's nearly $50 billion farming industry produces everything from dairy and beef to fruit and vegetables. The state's agricultural heartland is the Central Valley, and it produces a quarter of the nation's food. And all that food requires a lot of water. 80% of California's water is used for agriculture. And that means that you, the average American, are consuming more than 300 gallons of California water each week by eating the food that is produced here. Some foods are more water intensive than others. One slice of avocado, over four gallons. One bunch of grapes, 24 gallons. Three mandarin oranges, over 42 gallons. So where does the water come from to produce all that food? Much of it comes from here, the Sierra Nevada mountains, where every spring the melting snowpack replenishes the state's crucial reservoirs. Right now, that snowpack is at historic lows. And that means the state's reservoirs are in trouble, leading experts to make a dire prediction. After the driest January on record, California's reservoirs may hold just one year's water supply. With reservoirs running dry, farmers are turning to groundwater. Over time, groundwater accumulates in vast underground aquifers. But now, over the past few years, groundwater levels have dropped 50 feet or more as farmers drill deeper and deeper to access it. Today we do set uh, in law a framework that has been resisted uh, for a long, long time, since before my father was even governor. Ten months ago, California became the last state in the entire West to regulate groundwater usage. The state's first ever mandatory water restriction soon followed. We're in an historic drought, and that demands unprecedented action. A 25% reduction in water usage statewide has forced residents and businesses to cut back. But that mandatory reduction doesn't include farmers, 
which has led to a backlash. Critics say the farming industry uses the most water statewide. Brown says he will re-examine the issue if the drought persists. Cities and water agencies have implemented their own conservation measures, but no one knows if it will be enough. And no one knows when this drought will come to an end. What we do know is that the era of climate change is upon us, and the extraordinary in California today will very likely become the ordinary of tomorrow. The New York Times has an interactive feature with the headline, Your Contribution to the California Drought. That comes right from the text, which explains that the portions of foods shown are grown in California and represent what average Americans eat in a week. Quote, we made an estimate of the amount of water it takes to grow each portion to give you a sense of your contribution to the California drought. Close quote. Well, there are some problems here. California's drought is caused by lower than normal precipitation coupled with higher than normal temperatures. It's not the same thing as a water shortage. If a city ran their fire hydrants for 24 hours a day, they could have a water shortage, but they wouldn't have a drought. But okay, California's drought has caused a water shortage, and California's agriculture uses 80% of the state's available water. Changing the headline wouldn't really fix the piece, which is ultimately an awkward guide to buying low-water produce. For example, a thin melon slice is a water guzzler at 1.1 gallons, whereas a tiny pear wedge is under least consumption because it takes only 0.51 gallons. But is that because pears take less water to grow than melons or because a thin slice is bigger than a tiny wedge? It's hard to say. The bigger question, anyway, is whether blaming consumers for California's water shortage and implying that they ought to selectively boycott or just feel bad about California produce is actually a smart approach. It's common for corporate media, driven by commercial advertising, to emphasize the importance of purchasing choices, framing social and environmental problems as a matter of personal virtue or guilt. But as Think Progress noted in a piece on agriculture and the water crisis, it's not consumer demand that has resulted in California growing so much of the U.S.'s fruits and vegetables. It's government policy, including massive subsidies for corn, mainly to be turned into ethanol, corn syrup, and animal feed. Shifting consumer preferences might encourage farmers to switch from one crop to another, but only a change in government policies can stop agribusiness from taking as much water as it can. As for your and my contribution to California's drought, it's not eating almonds. It's participating in an economy that injects vast amounts of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, creating the changed climate that has led to the region's worst drought in 1,200 years. That, too, calls for societal action and the understanding that your contribution extends well beyond your consumption. If the river runs dry. Like it probably will 
I'll drink from the well till I get my fill. If God likes a joke, and I think that it may, we'll both be there laughing at the end of the play. I'm joined today by J. Matthew Roney, research associate at the Earth Policy Institute, also co-author of The Great Transition, Shifting from Fossil Fuels to Solar and Wind Energy. Uh, great topic for us. You know, we, we often hear from the detractors of moving away from fossil fuels that solar and wind are just not efficient enough to really replace a significant portion of the energy we get from fossil fuels, that the amount of spending that would be required would be inordinate and a drain on the economy, etc., etc. So I want to break this down to you one at a time. First of all, have there been developments and improvements to the efficiency of solar and wind energy over the last 10 to 15 years? Uh, certainly, uh, in both of those kinds of technologies, whether we're talking about uh, solar photovoltaics, those are the uh, panels you see on, on rooftops or in, in large uh, solar farms uh, in California, for example, or in um, wind turbines, um, for example, wind, um, taller, um, taller turbines with longer blades um, uh, get you a lot more wind energy um, uh, from a single turbine. Um, efficiency in solar panels going up means you have uh, you have to put fewer panels on the rooftop to get the same amount of uh, electricity from them. So uh, there's certainly been um, big efficiency gains. Uh, what's probably most exciting is the fall in cost um, of both of those technologies. Um, since 1972, uh, we've seen the price of solar panels drop from about $70 per watt to below 70 cents per watt. Um, and that's just the solar panels. The installed cost of the solar system, which includes everything from labor, extra equipment, um, finding customers, etc., has dropped by about half since 2011. Um, similar, similarly, uh, wind farms, uh, excuse me, wind turbines, um, the utility scale uh, price of wind has dropped 60% in the United States since 2009. So um, the costs are dropping very fast, and it's making these two forms of renewable energy um, cost competitive with fossil fuels and nuclear power in a growing number of markets, not just in the United States, but around the world. And let's talk a little bit about that cost comparison. Many of the cost comparisons I see that frame solar and wind not too favorably don't take into consideration the subsidies that are involved in the fossil fuel industry. So can you talk a little bit about that and, and kind of explain to us the impact of those subsidies and how it can cloud the real cost comparison? Right. So even though um, costs for solar and wind have fallen dramatically um, over the last several years or several decades, in, in fact, um, the playing field isn't anywhere close to level. We don't pay the full cost of burning coal or burning gasoline in our cars. Um, and in fact, in many countries, uh, fossil fuels are heavily subsidized. So uh, at the global level for production and consumption of fossil fuels, um, I believe it was 2013, the International Energy Agency estimated about $600 billion of subsidies for fossil fuels, and about half of that went to production and half to consumption. Um, 
this doesn't take into account the uh, very large health impacts of uh, burning coal, for example. In the United States, um, a Harvard team several years ago estimated that about $345 billion per year is the amount that we uh, that someone foots the bill for in terms of increased um, trips to the emergency room uh, for asthma attacks or um, early deaths or water pollution and climate impacts. And so um, these are costs that are not factored into the price of coal-fired electricity, but they're uh, costs that we all pay. I'm, I'm stunned time and time again at the contrast between those who say that fiscal conservatism and small government is a priority and the policies they support when it comes to fossil fuels and subsidies, if we were to combine the government spending in terms of subsidies for fossil fuels, as well as the increased sort of shared costs as far as health care goes because of the burning of fossil fuels, would it not be far more fiscally conservative to start a transition to clean energy right away? Uh, certainly, that's absolutely right. Um, the uh, the most conservative thing that we could do is not alter the climate system. Uh, I believe Bill McKibben has, has said that uh, time and again. Um, so while uh, solar and wind are becoming cost competitive in a growing number of markets around the world, um, full cost accounting would um, truly accelerate this transition. And uh, the good news is that uh, many countries and regions within countries are now pricing carbon emissions. Um, the World Bank had a, a report out last May uh, that said around 40 countries are pricing carbon or plan to in the next several years, whether that's through a carbon tax or a cap-and-trade system, and that uh, when China's national cap-and-trade system rolls out next year, as anticipated, uh, roughly a quarter of world carbon emissions will be priced in some way. Now, that's not nearly enough, but it's a, a good start and uh, well ahead of where we were even a couple of years ago. So let's go through some of the other talking points and let's see if any of them have any, any validity to them. One we sometimes hear is that in the U.S., if you look at the entire country, not just the sunnier areas, we just don't have nearly the amount of sunlight that would really make a transition to significant use of solar power viable. Any truth to that? Uh, none. Uh, if we look at uh, the world leader currently in solar photovoltaic deployment, which is Germany, um, Germany has the solar profile of Alaska or Seattle, Washington, not, not very sunny places. And so uh, the idea that you have to be a, a desert country in order to harvest a large amount of your electricity from solar power is, uh, is a myth. Um, Germany, in fact, gets uh, more than 7% of its electricity from solar power uh, right now. Italy gets about 7.9%. Um, so it's actually a very, it would be a very small um, uh, aerial footprint to uh, generate all the electricity that we would need. Now that uh, that's um, not including all of the uh, the transmission that would be needed, but just sort of to give a sense of the scale, um, it's actually a very small footprint that would be needed. Let's talk about jobs then. Another complaint that I often hear is, hey, you're not considering that if you start phasing out fossil fuels and phasing in things like solar and wind, the number of jobs that would be supported and or created by alternative energy pale in comparison to the number of people whose employment derives directly or indirectly from the fossil fuel industry. What about that? Oh, that's also incorrect. Um, we know that uh, coal-fired power, which has dropped uh, by more than 20% since it peaked in 2007 in the United States, 
is on its way out, and um, uh, coal employment uh, now sits below employment in the solar sector in the United States. And so uh, we can just look at the raw numbers and see that that's incorrect. If people want to look into countries that are successfully implementing all, uh, alternative energy, renewable energy, you mentioned as far as solar goes, Germany and Italy. What are some other countries that are deriving uh, you know, some of the higher percentages of their energy from renewable sources? Sure. Uh, well, one of the most interesting cases is Denmark. Uh, it's about five and a half billion people, uh, and they generated 43% of their electricity from wind power uh, in 2014. Uh, that's up from 34% the year prior to that, and they're aiming for 50% of their electricity from wind by 2020, and we think that they'll get there uh, maybe a year or two early. Uh, Portugal and Spain both get 20% or more of their electricity from wind, and Ireland is almost there as well. Um, already mentioned Germany with solar power, but they actually get more of their electricity from wind farms as well. So uh, about 9% of Germany's electricity came from wind in 2014, um, and that's even as coal-fired power dropped. And so um, efficiency gains, wind power, and solar power are allowing Germany to turn away from coal even as it phases out its nuclear program uh, post-Fukushima. Um, in fact, in 2014, fossil fuel generated electricity in Germany fell to a 35-year low. And so we're starting to see glimpses of, of how this transition could play out around the world. All right, last uh, pro-fossil fuel talking point, so to speak, that I want to run by you. Uh, one that I hear often is the countries that are doing the transition off of fossil fuels most successfully are far smaller countries than the U.S. So there's a scale issue in the U.S. that would be an impediment to a, a, as big of a transition. Uh, well, Denmark certainly is much smaller than the U.S. Uh, Germany, I believe, is about 90 million people, and so um, that's a, a much larger chunk of the population, still not um, near the U.S., 300 million-plus people. Um, but uh, folks who argue that also don't take into account the enormous solar and wind energy resources that we have available. Um, for example, in the United States, about 4.4% uh, of our electricity came from wind last year, but in certain states we're getting more than 12%, in nine, nine states actually. So Iowa gets 28% of its electricity from wind now, South Dakota about 25%. Um, and we know just from... Um, academic studies and from uh, government uh, papers, estimates of our wind and solar resource. Um, there's certainly no shortage. Um, same thing with China, uh, which incidentally now generates more of its electricity from wind farms than it does from its nuclear plants. China's the country that's building the most nuclear plants in the world, and they're certainly not slowing down in their nuclear program. But uh, when wind power exceeds nuclear power um, in a country like China, you start to get a sense that uh, it, these renewable energy resources are not marginal. No one can argue that anymore. One easy way to make a difference and vote with your dollars is to sign up to replace fossil fuels with green energy for your home or office. I've partnered with Ethical Electric, a clean energy company that makes it fast and easy to switch to wind power for your energy needs. Nothing about how you receive your energy will change. You continue to receive your bill from your regional utility, but you'll be buying 100% Pennsylvania wind energy with your monthly dues and supporting Best of the Left at the same time. Just go to ethicalelectric.com slash best 
best to sign up. They service states from Illinois over to Connecticut and down to Washington, D.C., and they're always working on expanding into new territory. So if you're anywhere in that area, check them out to see if you're covered. If you're in another area of the U.S., I recommend simply Googling the phrase buying green power to find the green power network from the U.S. Department of Energy, where you'll be able to find the green energy suppliers in your area. Again, that's ethicalelectric.com slash best. And that link is also in the sidebar of my website or simply Google buying green power. And if you're outside the U.S., then you're on your own. Janet watching Free Speech TV on the Dish Network in Kamaya, Idaho. Am I saying it right? uh, Yes, that's right. I was on the line for a long time, and somehow you couldn't hear me. Yeah, so it works. So what's up? Uh, You want to talk about nuclear power? Well, yeah. You know, you had a program a couple days ago on how fast the world is getting uh, entering climate change, way faster than they thought. And here in uh, Idaho and eastern Washington, we've had like a week of temperatures 20 degrees above normal, and yesterday was a record-breaking 100 degrees in June. So I'm really worried about climate change, and according to the nuclear scientists, nuclear is really the only practical way that we can switch off of um, carbon-based fuels. And there are new... Janet, that's not true. Well... It's it's really not true. There are there are people who are salesmen and pitchmen for the nuclear power industry who are saying that. But it, you know, nuclear power plants don't produce carbon-free energy until about the tenth year of their lifespan because so much carbon goes into mining uranium, refining uranium, transporting uranium, building the nuclear power plant, making all that concrete. Making concrete is insanely uh, intensive in terms of producing carbon, well, carbon dioxide. There are new methods for making concrete that don't use uh, lots of power. We can, we can power the world right now at scale with solar and wind. Just those two technologies alone are more than enough. We do not need nuclear power. The reason why well, Germany the did their 100,000 rooftops program uh, was so that they would not have to build two nuclear power plants. They ended up not building 10 nuclear power plants. They're decommissioning them. Germany is going to be nuclear-free within 10 or 15 years because they're moving entirely to solar. They're getting half their electricity from from solar right now. But the problem with solar and wind both is that the sun doesn't shine all the time and the wind doesn't blow all the time, so you have to have backup plants to fill in. And No, uh, you have to have storage. Well, they don't have uh, adic- any adequate. We we actually we storage. actually do. We have very good storage systems. The the easiest one is hydrogen. You create electricity either through solar power or through wind power. You run that electricity through water. It breaks the water into hydrogen and oxygen. You you capture the hydrogen and you store it. And then when you want when you want electricity, you simply burn that hydrogen fuel in a turbine that that turns a generator. In other words, you generate electricity. And actually, use that. Oh, that's being it's, it's being it's in use all over the world. I have a son-in-law who works for power generating companies. They do wind plants, and they've been trying to come up with an adequate storage system for wind. Yeah. I don't don't know that anybody's doing it at industrial scale levels, but hydrogen power has been well-researched. It can be converted either using, uh, uh, what do you call them, catalytic converters, not not catalytic converters, but through, through a catalytic process, or it can be converted by burning. Um, and you know, hydrogen cars. There's, there's, 
And that's just one of the ways. I mean, you know, the, the Norwegians, what they do is they pump water up. And then they, you know, during during the well, during the fine if you've got and, the water, but there's yeah. places that don't have the water. You're, you're right. So you use what what you use what you have. But there are there's a lot of different kind of storage techniques and technologies. And Tesla now, uh, Elon Musk, you know, the guy who runs Tesla, they've developed some amazing new battery technologies. So we do not need nuclear power, Janet. It is, in fact, the opposite. We need to get rid of nuclear power. Nuclear power produces waste that is hot and deadly for a million years. And the, the idea that we can somehow protect ourselves from something for a million years when we've only been on this planet 160,000 years doesn't make any sense. Janet, thank you for the call. For decades, solar power was so expensive and unwieldy, few could afford it. And that is changing in a mind-bendingly rapid pace. Over the past several years, the cost of solar energy has dramatically decreased. I mean dramatically, making it more accessible to more people. Earlier this week, it got another shot in the arm for the Obama administration after it announced a new initiative to make solar energy more affordable to low- and middle-income Americans. White House hopeful Senator Bernie Sanders then introduced legislation with a similar goal. Solar energy is having a moment right now. And the future we have long been promised is now, finally, upon us. We have this, this handy fusion reactor in the sky called the sun. Okay? <laughs> you don't have to do anything. It just works. <laughs> Shows up every day and produces ridiculous amounts of power. Solar energy is booming. And it's a boom a very long time in the making. Its energy will not run out. It will not pollute the air. It will not poison our waters. In the midst of the 1970s energy crisis, the technology and the will existed to make solar a viable alternative to fossil fuels. If there is not enough heat or air conditioning, you don't blame the Middle East or the president. You blame the sun. In the era of 8-tracks and disco, solar energy was the future. The solar heating business is expanding so rapidly that the federal government has set up a solar information center. By 1979, the country appeared to be on the verge of a solar revolution, and the Carter administration set a goal. 20% of the country's energy needs would be drawn from renewable sources by the end of the century. The president even had solar panels installed on the roof of the White House. These solar panels at the White House cost almost $30,000, and they heat only the water in the building's west wing. But they are meant to symbolize the Carter administration's commitment to solar energy. But despite having a champion in the White House, it was solar's steep price tag that proved to be its biggest obstacle. For most builders and homeowners, the saving in fuel bills is not worth the cost of the installation. And then came Ronald Reagan. In years to come, solar energy may provide much of the answer, but for the next two or three decades, we must do such things as master the chemistry of coal. The Reagan administration slashed funding for solar research and development, tax breaks were eliminated, and the White House solar panels came down. 
on a practical level, the Reagan administration's support for solar energy has ground to a halt. The would-be solar revolution went from boom to bust. There was no failure in the solar technologies. When the subsidies were cut, there was no way that solar could compete. But today, solar is making a comeback. Big time. Solar power capacity in the U.S. has jumped 20-fold since 2008. The fastest growing source of electricity in America is the sun. The California-based company SolarCity, which is the country's largest installer of residential solar systems, has seen its customer base doubled over just the past four quarters. And it's not just because technology has improved or because more people have decided to go green. It's a matter of simple economics. The biggest trend in solar right now is, is solar has become affordable. Solar City CEO Lyndon Rive is confident the company can enlist a million customers by 2018. The demand's always been there. It's just the industry uh, has to build out the infrastructure to deliver that demand. That kind of rapid growth is thanks mainly to cost. Solar is now cheap. China has helped drive down solar manufacturing costs by investing a lot of money in solar panel production. But solar is also booming because companies like Solar City have figured out a way to give Americans what they crave. Zero money down. We switched to Solar City. No upfront costs, lowered our monthly bill. Now we have the infinite power of the sun working for us 24-7. Instead of spending thousands of dollars upfront to buy and install solar panels, many customers are essentially leasing them. I think once we turn on the meter, uh, we'll definitely see the savings get this installed today and then see the benefits uh, tomorrow. Over the past few years, solar home installations have gotten faster and cheaper, something not lost on the utility companies. The big utilities who make more money selling you your power are watching more and more customers across the country install solar panels and move towards their own personal energy independence. The solar boom we were promised is finally happening. The question now is whether the utility companies will let it. The Vatican has released the official version of the highly anticipated encyclical on the environment written by Pope Francis. An encyclical is a teaching letter, and this one instructs Catholics around the world on the moral, ethical, and religious imperatives to act on climate change and protect the environment. Pope Francis accepts the science of man-made climate change. He says, quote, human beings pollute the water, soil, air. All of these are sins. And he forcefully calls on individuals and governments to act because the poorest people in the world will be hurt first and worse by global warming. Alexei Laushkin, vice president of the Evangelical Environmental Network, says this encyclical is unique in calling for cultural change. The encyclical is calling for a renewed sense of our humanity when it comes to our relationship with God's creation and the way we do business and the way we treat the poor 
and the way we feel connected with all people. The encyclical is written for people of goodwill of every culture. The Pope's encyclical is intended to mobilize international climate treaty talks in Paris later this year. Climate scientists are ecstatic and hope his intervention will be a game changer. But right-wing media is predictably very unhappy with the Pope's big move. Fox News host Greg Gutfield called him a Marxist. He has a Marxist background. Oh, my God. Here we go. And basically, so did Rush Limbaugh. But he doesn't even disguise it, folks, in this encyclical. It doesn't even disguise every other word seems to be about how unfettered capitalism is destroying the world and how the rich countries have to give more money to the poor countries to make amends. I mean, that's... Call it what you want, Marxism, socialism, what have you. I call it being a decent person and giving a damn about humanity, which Rush obviously doesn't. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. Remember the good old days when Republican politicians beholden to the energy lobby simply bloviated nonsense about climate change, like Senator James Inhofe of Oil and Gas, who once tossed a snowball on the floor of the Senate to prove that the atmosphere isn't warming. I asked the chair, you know what this is? It's a snowball from outside here. So it's very, very cold out. So here, Mr. President, catch this. Mm -hmm. And who gets his climate data from the Bible. My favorite is Genesis 8.22, which is, as long as the earth remains, there will be springtime and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night. You know, God's still up there. God help us. That from the chairman of the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. Back in the day, that stuff was reliable red meat to the base. But now, at last, the base is gradually coming to its senses. And 52% of Republican respondents agreed that a climate deal would be a good idea. Among those to climb aboard the sky-is-falling bandwagon, Pope Francis, who warned this week, quote, our house is going to ruin, and declared a moral duty to act. Si está rovinando. And that dude has a pretty sizable base himself. So suddenly, entering an election year, explicit climate deniers are an embarrassment and political liability. And so fellow Republicans have given Senator Snowball the semicide treatment, launching him adrift on an ice flow while the rest of the party takes up a less confrontational but possibly more insidious climate rhetoric strategy. And by that I mean the non-denial denial. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says, 
I'm not a scientist. He's just trying to protect the coal industry and Kentucky jobs from the war on coal. Speaker of the House John Boehner says... I'm not, gonna, I'm not qualified to debate the science over climate change. Still, he blocks cap-and-trade or any other environmental protection legislation that comes his way. Florida Governor Rick Scott also says, quote... I'm not a scientist, but while rising tides threaten Florida's tourism economy, his administration forbids the use of the term climate change in any state publication or correspondence. And then there's Scott's gubernatorial predecessor, Jeb Bush. And I've decided I'm a candidate for president of the United States of America. A candidate, yes, he says, but a scientist, no, 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 no. That's for the eggheads. But... Why do they have to get all pushy about it? Jeb Bush. I don't think the science is clear of what percentage is man-made and which, what percentage is natural. I just don't. It's convoluted. And for the people to say the science has decided on this is just really arrogant, to be honest with you. It's this intellectual arrogance that now you can't have a conversation about it even. Good folks talk about things. They sit at the diner over coffee, maybe after church or after clearing brush, and they chew it over and come to an understanding. But these arrogant tree-huggers don't even want to listen. Why do we have to have a, de a debate where people that may have some doubts about this are c considered Neanderthals? That's the arrogance. And thus, can a candidate have it both ways? Distance himself from extremist climate deniers while simultaneously characterizing the rational evaluation of scientific evidence as elitist condescension pink meat to the base, and no big risk of alienating the Koch brothers. There is, of course, a long bipartisan history of populist rhetoric pandering to the common sense of the unsophisticated, salt-of-the-earth, ordinary American who doesn't put on airs. Here was Bill Clinton. Every one of us knows someone who's worked hard and played by the rules and still been hurt by this system. John McCain. Only because... Joe the plumber asked him the right question here, right here in Ohio. And some just folks talking about President Obama. I serve the president, a Miller Lite. The president also let someone buy him a Bud Light. Offered to arm wrestle the president to gain his vote, and the president said, hey, you know, let's play some basketball instead. So, yeah, it was fun. We will never have the elite smart people on our side. That last voice was Rick Santorum, who's also running for president and also an avowed know-nothing. Here's the former Republican senator from Pennsylvania explaining to Fox's Chris Wallace why fellow non-scientist Pope Francis should pipe down about climate change on account of it's none of his beeswax. I'm just saying, what should the Pope use his moral authority for? And I, I would make well, the argument... Well, he would say he's protecting the earth. I, I would say that that's an important thing to do, but uh, I think there are more pressing problems confronting, uh, confronting uh, the earth uh, than climate change. Really? Like what? The flat tax? But such is the nature of debate when the salvation of the planet becomes just another battle in the culture wars and campaign donations are on the line. The conversation that Jeb Bush and his fellow candidates want to have is reduced to them against us, which isn't a conversation, it's an incitement. Of course, truth be told, there is no conversation to be had about climate science, any more than you can have a conversation about smoking and cancer, although that is precisely the line Big Tobacco peddled for decades about what it called the smoking controversy. So, yes, Governor Bush, you are correct. 
the truth is arrogant. It has no patience for demagoguery or misdirection or lies. You don't have to be a scientist to get that, just an honest broker, unwilling to cash checks from polluters, while day by day, decade by decade, our world, what Pope Francis calls our house, is burnt by the sun. And when we say, no. I Saying you're doing fine, Oklahoma, Oklahoma, okay. Oklahoma, when the rain comes sweeping down the flank, Oklahoma, when the wind that creeps, it sure smells sweet when the wind comes right behind the rain. BP deal will lead to a cleaner gulf. As the headline, the New York Times put over a July 8th editorial that, in its tone and substance, makes a pretty good illustration of why it almost assuredly won't. The jig is up, really, with the Times' first words. Quote, though no amount of money can ever compensate for the staggering damage caused by the 2010 BP oil spill, close quote, let's just pause a moment and travel to an alternate universe in which that sentence begins... Since no amount of money can ever compensate for the staggering damage caused by the 2010 BP oil spill, and then goes on to ask whether that industry is worth maintaining, given the harms it poses to the planet. Okay, but back on Earth, it continues, quote, Last week's provisional $18.7 billion settlement among five states, the federal government, and the company will help make amends for one of the worst environmental disasters in American history, close quote. The Times wants us to know that, quote, even before this settlement, BP's costs have not been trivial, close quote. Those costs being, you know, penalties for committing crimes. When all is said and done, the paper says the company estimates, and why not trust them, it will have paid nearly $54 billion, shedding major assets to pay the tab. That tab, again, being not for beer, but penalties for committing crimes of a staggering nature. Quote, if that isn't a deterrent to careless behavior by the oil companies, it's hard to know what is. Close quote. Now, here would be a great place to note BP's own assessment of these purportedly behavior-changing penalties. Chief Financial Officer Brian Gilvery said in a press release, cited by Antonio Yuhas in Rolling Stone, quote, the impact of the settlement on our balance sheet and cash flow will be manageable, close quote. You can almost feel the deterrence, can't you? Well, nowhere does the Times events awareness of federal judge Carl Barbier's ruling, which implicated not just BP, but also Halliburton and by extension the entire offshore drilling industry, and blamed the disaster not on an unforeseeable accident, but on business as usual. Instead, we get the rousing notion that the settlement gives the Gulf's ecosystem a real shot at renewal. So, maybe a more fitting headline would be Guaranteed future disasters, the best we can hope for.
It's hard to believe that nearly 40% of our country's electricity still comes from coal, a dirty, outdated energy source. Coal not only causes health problems, but it's also the main contributor to climate disruption. Just how bad is coal? In mountaintop removal mining, coal companies clear-cut forests and literally blow the tops off mountains to get the coal. This process dumps millions of tons of waste into our streams and poisons our drinking water. But mining coal is only the beginning. Burning coal generates smog, which can cause asthma attacks, chest pains, and breathing problems. In fact, one out of ten children in the U.S. suffers from asthma, and it's the number one reason kids miss school due to illness. The pollution from burning coal leads to 12,000 emergency room visits and more than $100 billion in health costs every year. Coal pollution also contains toxic mercury that damages the nervous system and is especially dangerous for babies and young children because it can cause developmental problems. Mercury rains down into our oceans, rivers and lakes, contaminating our fish and seafood. And even after coal is burned, the waste that's left over is bad for our health. Each year, coal plants generate more than 140 million tons of toxic waste called coal ash that's stored in thousands of pits across the country. Enough toxic waste to fill more than 400,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools. Living near a toxic coal ash pit can be worse for kids' health than smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. The good news is that the United States has become an international leader in reducing carbon pollution, largely because we are retiring coal plants and replacing them with clean, renewable energy nationwide. The amount of electricity America gets from wind and solar power has more than doubled in the past few years. Iowa and South Dakota are already getting more than 20% of their energy from wind power. And in 2012, 10 states got more than 10% of their energy from wind. Coal is making us sick, and it's time to make this toxic, outdated energy source history. Let's create a clean energy future for our country and for our kids. Let's move beyond coal. Love and war, who's been keeping score? I have been. Now I'm a has-been in my own time. Get in line. In the shadow of a coal mine. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, the Sierra Club's Beyond Coal Campaign. Climate actions and campaigns can seem overwhelming in scope, but while few in the media were paying attention, the grassroots organizing and smart strategizing of the Beyond Coal campaign from the Sierra Club has made shutting down the dirtiest energy source in the country look almost easy. The main goals of the Sierra Club campaign are to keep coal in the ground in Appalachia and elsewhere, move municipalities to clean energy, and successfully retire one-third of the nation's 500-some coal plants by 2020. Last week, they celebrated the closing of the 200th plant, leaving 323 on their targeted list. This is a major victory for both health and optics reasons. Coal is responsible for one-third of U.S. emissions while making us unnecessarily sick. As many as 13,000 premature deaths and more than 100 
billion in healthcare costs annually are attributed to coal. Hitting even just the halfway mark, which is practically around the corner, would make a massive difference in the lives of millions while proving that transitioning from dirty to clean energy is not the impossibility it was once portrayed as. Bruce Niles, senior campaign director for Beyond Coal, explained the importance of last week's milestone to Kate Shepard at the Huffington Post. Quote, Back in 2009, the prevailing wisdom was that coal was inevitable, that the U.S. would be burning coal for a long time. We set out to show that you can make a lot of progress even without a climate bill. Unquote. Now, the Sierra Club is still, of course, pushing the administration to follow through on promises to be proactive. Their petition, Speak Out for a Strong, Clean Power Plan, which can be found at sierraclub.org, is flooding the administration with support ahead of the expected pushback on the EPA's proposed clean power plan from fossil fuel billionaires. Through the petition page, you can sign, tweet to the EPA with the hashtag ActOnClimate, post the campaign to your other social network feeds, get involved in a specific coal plan closing action in your state, and connect with other campaigns. Join with Beyond Coal to help push them over the tipping point to achieving an end to our dirtiest energy source. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If joining a winning campaign for clean energy already in progress sounds great to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about Beyond Coal via social media so that others in your network can get involved too. Activism. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage with action? Last week, there were a number of uh, wins out of the Supreme Court, and uh, conservatives were furious. They said, uh, these unelected justices, these five justices, how dare they say that uh, we should give gay people the same rights as straight people? It says equal rights in the uh, Constitution, and I'm pretty sure that was the whole point of the country, but they were outraged by that. Uh, equal rights for gay people? Hell no, no, no. For history, immemorial, uh, for time immemorial, we have discriminated against gays, and I can't believe uh, that now we're supposed to follow the Constitution and not do so. Okay, outraged by that. Um, and then when uh, the court ruled for... Uh, uh, upholding Obamacare as it was clearly intended, as its authors said it was intended, again outrage uh, from conservatives in the right wing. Well, uh, just announced that the Supreme Court is now blocking President Obama's limits on power plants and pollution. And conservatives celebrate. Interestingly enough, five to four decision. Five unelected justices of the Supreme Court overruling the clearly stated uh, intention of the voters. The voters elected President Obama, convincingly so. They knew exactly what he was about. They knew that he was for more environmental regulation. Mitt Romney was for less environmental regulation. They made him the President of the United States of America. And five unelected justices come forward and say, now, uh, we're just going to take a core political issue, which the Supreme Court is not supposed to get involved in, and get in there and tell you our political opinion and overturn it. Based on what? Okay, now, 
Scalia, who screams and yells about the plain meaning of the law, and I can't believe the other justices would interject their political opinions into the wording of the uh, uh, of the legislation in interpreting it. Well, they based the decision, and the guy who wrote uh, the majority opinion was Scalia. Based on this simple uh, set of words, in the Clean Air Act, it says that the government must take, quote, appropriate and necessary action in enforcing environmental regulations. That's it. That's all it says, appropriate and necessary, in that regard, in that context. You know what Scalia did? He said, oh, I think that that means they must do a cost-benefit analysis and it must be to only to, uh, consider the costs and benefits to multinational corporations. And that if the uh, costs and benefits don't add up for the corporations, well, then they must not do the law. Wait a minute, where does it say that in the law? It doesn't say that. You made that up. All it says is they must take appropriate and necessary action. Where the hell does it talk about any of the things that you're mentioning in your opinion? Oh, I see. When it's to your political benefit, you love to pull shit out of your ass. Oh, appropriate and necessary it means you must do a cost-benefit analysis to the benefit of corporations. Made up out of whole cloth. The guy who pretends to care so much about the plain meaning of words. Have words no meaning, he said last week. So, let's look into this further. New York Times explains. The challengers said, uh, these are the plaintiffs that brought the case, the agency, the Environmental Protection Agency, had run afoul of that law by deciding to regulate the emissions without first undertaking a cost-benefit analysis. The agency responded that it was not required to take the cost into account when it made the initial determination to regulate. But the agency added that it did so later in setting emission standards and that in any event, the benefits far outweighed the cost. So check, check, check. According to the law, they don't have to do that analysis. You made that up, Scalia, just to, base, just to make sure that your corporate friends win again. Because of your political beliefs that the corporation should be allowed to poison us as much as they like. Second of all, they did the cost-benefit analysis, so you lied about that. Okay. And then third of all, they determined that the, the benefits outweigh the costs. Because what you didn't take into account is, hey, you know that poison has a cost on the rest of us. When you, whether it's greenhouse gas emissions and destroying the planet, which is a pretty high cost. Whether it's the severe storms that come out of it or whether it's simply the pollution that comes out of those plants that goes into our water, into our air, into everything that surrounds us and gets in our drinking waters and our ground and everything that our kids are affected by. That is also a cost. And getting rid of that is a gigantic benefit. We did that cost-benefit analysis. No, I don't believe you. I don't like the answer that you came up with. I'm a Republican, so I don't really care. All of the rest of it is just verbal diarrhea. That's what Scalia is. He's the living definition of verbal diarrhea. When it's a decision he doesn't agree with, how dare they? What about the original meaning of the words? And when it's his political action, oh, I don't know, man. Appropriate and necessary means a thousand different words that I just made up uh, and that now apply to you just so that corporations can win and they can put whatever toxic thing they like into there. I'm not sure anyone has ever been more full of shit in American history than Antonin Scalia.
quick note that we only have one voicemail today, and it comes from Wade, and he called in a couple of months ago with this question, but I didn't have time to answer it at the time, so I saved it till now, and it turned out I had a whole lot to say about it. Hey, Jay, it's Wade again. Hey, uh, I was listening to your commentary in the last show there, and you were talking about how, uh, you know, switching to renewable energy takes money from the coal companies and whatnot, uh, and I was wondering, though, like, when, when you're making, when you're arguing this or debating this with somebody and they talk about, you know, uh, the coal jobs or the oil field jobs, I mean, to those of us who don't work in the oil field or coal, that may seem like a, you know, uh, not that big of a concern, but to like a coal miner in West Virginia, that's, that's one hell of a big concern to them. You know, it's like the main concern. And it's why you see like so much opposition to it. Cause you know, in, in West Virginia, for instance, I mean, that state's, Entire industry is based off coal. They're they're like Detroit statewide, basically. You know, uh, you know, kind of a one industry uh, area there. So, what do you tell people when you're when you're talking about going to renewable energy? What are the? I guess the question I'm asking is, and I'm hoping to inspire you to do you know some future commentary or maybe even a full show on like green jobs or the alternative to working for the coal industry. What comes next? At what big employer? Is, is the green sector gonna? Where are, the, where, where are we gonna hire the people at? What, what's the next industry? What's the the green Exxon? Is, is there a green Exxon? You know what I mean? Things like that. In terms of just the employment of people, that is the one thing that that, that they do have a point on. You know, hey, a lot of people will lose their jobs if we stop using coal. They they do have a point on that. And and I hate to have an incomplete argument, you know, basically. But uh, anyway, that's what I was calling for, man. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can either record a message on the voice memo app of your phone and email it to me, jay at bestofleft.com, or leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. In either case, the closer you keep your message to two minutes or under, the better the chance it'll be played. Now, in response to Wade and his question about the coal miners, you know, when it comes to the climate, we are all in for a transition period. It's just that some of us don't know it yet. And coal miners just happen to be at the absolute epicenter of that transition, which is actually being compounded by something else that I'll get to in a minute. But first of all, by any metric, coal miners, coal plant workers, and basically everyone who lives in coal communities have tough lives. Now notice, I'm not saying that they have bad lives. I mean, they're just as capable as anyone of finding joy and love and meaning and satisfaction in their work and their lives. And so they can very much feel like they have a good life. I mean that they have tough lives because mining communities are basically synonymous with poverty, Coal jobs are physically difficult, often dirty work, and the communities around coal mining and coal plants always have health problems brought on by coal ash and the like. Back in my days working with the NGO, the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, uh, I went down to southwest Virginia and actually talked to people who live in trailers within a couple of miles of a coal plant. And they had that you know white vinyl siding on their house, but it turned gray from the coal ash swirling around in the air. And you know they'd wash it off, but it would come right back. Same went for all of their outdoor furniture and their kids' toys and everything in the yard. 
They couldn't let their kid play outdoors, even though there was a huge grassy area that would have been perfect for cruising around in a big wheel or something. You know, I mean, everyone in the house had health problems, but of course, they lived there because they couldn't afford to move. I mean, it's hard to sell a house that's covered in coal ash, you might imagine. So destroying coal jobs with clean energy and regulating away carbon fuels. You know, at the highest levels, this is just creative destruction. Old things need to go away so new things can replace them. Uh, you know, we don't lament the fate of the whale oil salesmen from back in the day. You know, their product was replaced by something else better and cheaper, so they had to adapt or perish. And although there are lots of climate activists who focus on the positive end of the green jobs aspect of the movement, you know, I don't think it's the job of the climate activist to also be a job placement counselor for displaced coal miners, you know? I mean, especially for coal miners who have no interest in learning how to build windmills or put up solar panels. I mean, what are we going to do? Set up a job transition bureaucracy for the coal miners? And, and then what about the oil company employees or the, the SUV salesmen? I mean, if we choose to help some people, then who's going to get left out? Now, my preference is we just set up systems that help everyone. We should have universal education. That way, if you need to transition jobs and you need to go back to school, cool, you're set. Universal healthcare. If your healthcare isn't tied to your job and it's not a financial burden on you, then you can do whatever you want with your life and not have to worry about you know an illness driving you into bankruptcy. And then finally, a universal basic income that would allow anyone to change jobs at will and do whatever they want with their life. I mean, if they have a passion in life that was unreachable before, then they may be able to follow that passion now. Otherwise, maybe they'll just be pickier about the next job they take. In any case, they will be happier, and because they are happier, they will be more efficient and productive in whatever work they choose to do. Now, coal miners just happen to be in a particularly bad situation, not just because they're at the epicenter of the transition, but there's the other aspect of their situation that I alluded to before. They're also in what is effectively a self-destructive cult. You know, I mean, mining and burning coal isn't just a job to them. It is not just their livelihood. It is their tradition and their heritage. If you suggest that coal mining is a generally bad thing to do, some of them will think that you're insulting their grandfather for the work he did down in the mines a hundred years ago. I mean, coal mining grabs people and instills pride in the work that they do in a way that I don't think any other profession in the country does. And it just so happens that just last night I read something that shed some light on this. I, I, you know, I had been familiar with this concept before, but I, I wasn't quite sure why that happened. So this is from the book Before Happiness, The Five Hidden Keys to Achieving Success, Spreading Happiness, and Sustaining Positivity by Sean Acor. Uh, it is very business-oriented, so it's not my favorite of the books I've been reading recently, uh, but this passage was particularly helpful. He's uh, talking about the concept of cognitive dissonance, which is a state that occurs when the brain recognizes that it is holding two conflicting beliefs. So he's saying that the guy who came up with the concept, Festinger, Quote, argues that if you spend a ton of effort on a task, your brain considers that a worthwhile expenditure of cognitive resources. But what if you spend a high effort on something your brain says is not important, not related to you, not valuable, or not something you enjoy? That leads to cognitive dissonance. Your brain thinks, why oh why did I pay such a high cognitive cost for something I care so little about? 
your brain hates cognitive dissonance. So it comes up with a justification to explain why you paid such a high cost, usually by deciding that the work actually was of high value. Thus, cognitive dissonance can trick your brain into perceiving that you care deeply about a particularly odious task or difficult challenge. And then he goes on to make an example of how the military puts new recruits through boot camp. He says, When cadets are going through this hellish training, to avoid cognitive dissonance, their brains convince them that they must really value what they are doing. I'm going through hell now because I want to be a great officer so badly, the brain thinks. Why would I go through all of this pain if I didn't? In other words, putting cadets through the ringer instills higher levels of commitment, determination, and loyalty because their brains decide they value it. And as we know, that's not just loyalty to the military, that's also loyalty to your fellow cadets. That's what forms the brotherhood in the military, which is you know, beneficial for the mission of the military. And now with coal miners, you know, they've been famous for a century for being the poorest, sickest people with the hardest, most dangerous jobs in the country. And they are also among the proudest people you will ever meet. And understanding how cognitive dissonance works demystifies this completely. I mean, it makes perfect sense that the people who have had it the worst would also be the most entrenched in their traditions and heritage. So it's important to understand this context when we talk about phasing out coal and eliminating these jobs. It is not an easy thing that can be done with no thought given to the displaced workers. It's simply a necessary thing to do, which means it is also our duty to create the kind of social safety net that will catch every one of those displaced workers and help them spring back in whatever way they want to. Now, but here's the really disturbing fact. We are all actually in a self-destructive cult. And I know saying it that way sounds surprising, but it shouldn't even be a controversial thing to say. I mean, we all know that our actions are causing climate change, and yet we don't change our actions. That's the definition of self-destructive. But the cultish part comes in because we believe we know how we're supposed to live in order to be happy. And all of that is instilled in us by society as we grow up, you know? Well, I grew up in the suburbs, and I want my children to have that same experience. So, you know, I moved to a big house because, you know, all the kids need to have their own rooms. And we needed that two-car garage because we also bought two cars to get the two of us to our two jobs that we need in order to support this incredibly wasteful lifestyle, not just in energy and money, but also in time time, right? I mean, tradition, heritage, livelihood. And most people haven't had it as bad as the coal miners. So we, you know, we're not as entrenched as they are. But is it really that much different? I mean, that sounds like some cognitive dissonance to me. People know that happiness comes from close relationships with loved ones and meaningful experiences, but they simultaneously believe somehow that their happiness is dependent on the stuff they have, you know, the size of their house, the fanciness of their cars, and so on. Most of us work harder than we would like to in order to maintain this consumer's lifestyle, even though we know deep down that it's not the consumption that's making us happy. This is classic cognitive dissonance. So the only way the mind can square this circle is to reason that if we're doing all this work in order to buy all this stuff, well, then we must be getting happiness out of it, even though all of the evidence is to the contrary. <laughs> so like the miners, we live with our cognitive dissonance and we just do what we've always done because we've always done it. And then someone comes along and suggests that we try living in a slightly different way for the sake of our own health and happiness, as well as the planet's, 
And then they're met with a lot of anger and hostility, <laughs> you know? So I'll close with some excerpts from Naomi Klein's book, This Changes Everything, Capitalism Versus the Climate. So uh, she talks about a variety of, of issues that, that touch on this. She says that uh, Alyssa Battistoni, an editor at the journal Jacobin, writes, quote, while making people work shitty jobs to quote-unquote earn a living has always been spiteful, it's now starting to seem suicidal, unquote. A basic income that discourages shitty work and wasteful consumption would also have the benefit of providing much-needed economic security in the frontline communities that are being asked to sacrifice their health so that oil companies can refine tar sands oil or gas companies can drill another fracking well. Nobody wants to have their water contaminated or have their kids suffer from asthma, but desperate people can be counted on to do desperate things, which is why we all have a vested interest in taking care of one another so that many fewer communities are faced with those impossible choices. That means rescuing the idea of a safety net that ensures that everyone has the basics covered, healthcare, education, food, and clean water. Indeed, fighting inequality on every front and through multiple means must be understood as a central strategy in the battle against climate change. And then in a different section, she writes, so how do you change a worldview, an unquestioned ideology? Part of it involves choosing the right early policy battles, game-changing ones that don't merely aim to change laws, but change patterns of thought. That means that a fight for a minimal carbon tax might do a lot less good than, for instance, forming a grand coalition to demand a guaranteed minimum income. That's not only because a minimum income, as discussed, makes it possible for workers to say no to dirty energy jobs, but also because the very process of arguing for a universal social safety net opens up a space for a full-throated debate about values, about what we owe to one another based on our shared humanity, and what it is that we collectively value more than economic growth and corporate profits. Indeed, a great deal of work and deep social change involves having debates during which new stories can be told to replace the ones that have failed us. And then finally she writes, quoting Observer columnist Nick Cohen, how can you persuade the human race to put the future ahead of the present? And then she answers it, the answer is that you don't. You point out that for a great many people, climate action is their best hope for a better present and a future far more exciting than anything else currently on offer. So what do we do with displaced coal workers? First of all, open their eyes to the idea that their lives can be better right now and that the lives of their entire families can be set on a better trajectory going indefinitely into the future. And secondly, create the social safety net that'll allow them to get from here to there. So keep those comments coming in. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestoftheleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of a Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained
Wonder what we're doing.